Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and today we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, the sixth and seventh petitions, and also looking at the conclusion there. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, we are back after last week covering the fifth petition, one whole episode on that petition. But as we talked about, that is the center of our Christian faith the forgiveness of sins, of course, that we receive from God and as we live out with one another. So now we're going to, as we have been doing, cover a few petitions here today. So let's go ahead and jump into it here. But by the way, that doesn't mean that these petitions are less important or anything of that nature either. Certainly these petitions will fit together well. So let's go ahead and jump into it here and start with the sixth petition. And lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. All right, thus far, the sixth petition from Luther's small catechism. Pastor Bessel, go ahead and take us away here with our catechesis lesson here on this sixth petition. Happy to, Sean. You are right to start off and say, hey, all of these petitions work together and all of them fit together real well, which is why we're going to try to tackle them all in this one episode. Because if you think back to that chart that we put up, we talked about the relationship between the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer and all the arrows going back and forth. And remember, we pointed out that the first half of the Lord's Prayer, not only does it sort of discuss and lay out for us the Ten Commandments, but in a sense, if we're going to look for the Apostles' Creed throughout the Lord's Prayer, the first chunk of the Lord's Prayer is really a first article prayer in many ways. The line that we covered last week on forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us is in many ways, and we sort of, we spent most of the time talking about this, it's all based on Christ's righteousness and the work of the cross. And so in many ways, it is a second article prayer. And now these final petitions that we put together or that Christ has for us and we consider together this hour, these final petitions are in many ways sort of a third article sanctification understanding. And that's why I do like to try and teach these together if possible, even if it means that we shorten the amount of time we spend talking about each one, but that if we notice that each one talks about the fact that the forgiven child of God can go forward in daily life, in that life of faith in God, fervent love toward one another, and he can go forward in life 
wrestling against sin, wrestling against temptation, looking forward to the final deliverance because he can trust in God's promises as has been laid out in the prayer previous to this. And as we saw in the mirror relationship between the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, all in a sense calmed by the promises of the creed. So with, with that overview and with that big picture, now as we consider these final petitions in order and lead us not into temptation, you know, what do we understand about this? This is really a petition about the daily life of the one who wants to wrestle against temptation and sin precisely because he rejoices in the forgiveness that is his as a child of God. And as the penitent says, as we'll get into in Confession Absolution, of all of this I repent and I am sorry, and I desire to do better, right? And this petition sort of hints at that desiring to do better, that we don't want to fall into temptation. And the way that we are not going to fall into temptation is if we are taught to refocus our mindset on the promise that God will lead us. And where God leads us, then we are not going to enter into temptation. If we allow our old Adam to get the better of us, then yeah, we're going to not only enter into temptation, but sin and all the consequences because old Adam just loves sin. Uh, and so we do have to see in this petition and its setup that Christ is very specifically teaching us this is about being comforted that God's holy will will lead you in the way that you should go as the forgiven child of God. And therefore, it's important to set up from the very beginning, as Luther says, God tempts no one. You can trust God's will. And you don't have to worry about whether or not God is going to lead you into temptation. God tempts no one, right out of James, right? The book of James, God tempts no one. And that's from James 1, I think it's verse 13 and following. God tempts no one. And so this is the very first thing we need to point out, is that Jesus is not teaching us here to pray that, gee, maybe God will tempt us. And so I'm really praying him to be kind and not tempt us. That's not at all what we're praying. It's interesting that this petition is also the one recently that I think the, uh, the Pope came out not too long ago and said, well, this one's so easily misunderstood that we, you know, now we need to reword it. Well, talk about chutzpah to say that Jesus' wording is not well-worded. And so I, the Pope, am going to give a decree that says that I'm going to improve upon Jesus' teaching. Uh, that's just absurd. But because we are sinners, we don't have to follow the silly nonsense of rewording the prayer, but we just need to learn and study it. Jesus wrote the prayer. It's not ours to improve upon, but it is ours to study and digest and cherish more and more. And so Luther's first teaching is absolutely right. God tempts no one. Make a sort of a side comment on this. This is one of the reasons that we probably should be very careful about trying to equate Jesus' baptism and our baptism, right? Sometimes we sort of make the mistake of thinking that because Jesus' baptism does teach and inform us about ours, therefore it is to be considered equal. But remember, after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil and to fulfill that righteousness of being Israel reduced to one, of being the new Adam. But that doesn't mean that when we are baptized, we have to worry that the Holy Spirit is going to drive us into temptation. And therefore, perhaps for that reason, Luther reminds us, no, God doesn't seek to tempt us. In fact, Jesus says, yes, temptations are sure to come in this world, but woe to the one by whom they come. 
Does that sound like a God who's going to actively tempt his children? No, he declares woe upon those by whom temptation comes. So that's the first thing to point out in this petition. God's not going to tempt you, and therefore you have every reason to follow his will, follow it wherever it leads, even if it leads into situations that the devil tries to use for tempting, right? You know, if, if God allows in this fallen world that you're going to get sick with COVID, the devil is going to tempt you to think that God has done this to you and therefore you ought find your deliverance and your safety in someone else because obviously God has failed you. That's not true at all. And so it's always very important to point out God tempts no one. And Luther does that right at the very beginning. And so now when he teaches us in the meaning what we are actually praying for in this petition, we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. This is a wonderful sentence that really we could spend some time on unpacking here. God guards and keeps. I do think that there is a um, distinction to be made between God guarding us and keeping us. That to, uh, you know, to guard, you know, some people might say that sounds more active and to keep sounds more passive, right? To protect and keep is, is a little bit different than being out there fighting for us and, and, and proactively guarding us. That God does both. He, he shields us, he defends us, but he's also out there fighting for us so that we can take absolute comfort in sort of this all-encompassing care of God and in, in uh, not just defending us passively and then, oh no, when we get into trouble, he's not going to help, but also not just being proactive without that constant promise of that good shepherd holding his precious little lamb. And so those two phrases, guard and keep, are wonderful little reminders of just how all-encompassing is God's protection of his people, and therefore, again, how much we have reason to just hold on to his good and holy will through all times of temptation. But when those times of temptation come, notice how Luther sets up where they come from, the devil, the world, our sinful nature. And what do they do? They tempt to deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. So the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, there's the list of the enemies. In the large catechism, Luther mentions old Adam specifically. And it is important to recall now at this point in the Lord's Prayer, especially, the phrase old Adam is not equivalent with saying the word me, for I am the baptized. I am not defined by old Adam, and therefore I should wrestle against old Adam and see him as the enemy, see him something that is about my neck, but that doesn't mean that I embrace him as still being my identity. And so when we talk about the old Adam, we ought never equate that with me. I belong to Christ. I belong to the new Adam, and therefore his inheritance is my inheritance, and in a sense, then I can actually talk about myself being a sort of a new Adam in Christ Jesus. And so old Adam may daily plague me, even from within, but that does not make old Adam me. Rather, we do have these enemies, the world, the devil, our sinful nature, our old Adam. And therefore, when these enemies start to get the upper hand, notice the progression of drifting away that Luther includes here into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. That drifting away mentality, and we'll sort of break this down in a minute, but you know, you might even ask yourself, 
Uh, why would Jesus teach us to pray this if, again, some of the false heterodox teaching out there that we sometimes hear is true in which sort of this once saved, always saved? If once saved, always saved, then there's no reason for Jesus to teach us about the dangers of temptation. There's no reason for all of the epistles to warn us about false prophets. I use the phrase, this idea of drifting away, that actually comes from the book of Hebrews, I believe it's chapter two, in which the image is given of the individual Christian accidentally drifting away and drifting off when he doesn't realize just how far he's drifting because he's not grounded to Christ the anchor. And so we do have to worry about the progression of drifting away. And that includes this threefold idea that he deceives us and he misleads us into false belief, despair, and other great shame or vice. So he deceives us and misleads us into this. In the large catechism, Luther includes another trio of progression. In the large catechism, it's not deceive us, mislead us into false belief, despair, other great shame or vice. In the large catechism, Luther says misbelief, false security, and stubbornness. That's an interesting trio to compare to the small catechism's trio. The small catechism's trio, false belief, despair, and then great shame and vice. Again, large catechism, misbelief, false security, and stubbornness. So an example of misbelief, false security, and stubbornness, which is really sort of this idea of saying there's nothing that can cause me to fall away. I'm secure in my sins. I'm not going to repent because I know I'm going to heaven. And so why would I bother to repent? That type of a thing. Uh, one misbelief, to use that word, that would be out there in some of the heterodox teaching is the idea that Christ died only for the elect. This is a very common teaching within the Calvinist school of thought. Christ died only for the elect. We are either the elect or we're not the elect. And that leads into a false security. I am the elect, and so there's nothing I can do to endanger my salvation. And then that leads to a stubbornness. Why not go on and sin? Why even bother seeking forgiveness? I'm the elect. See, so that which Luther uses in the large catechism, that focuses on this idea of false security and stubbornness. I don't know, you know, and I have to leave it to some of the scholars to understand why would Luther use the different one in the small catechism versus the large? Does it have to do with the fact that in the large catechism, he's speaking more, if you will, to the pastor and the head of the household? And in the small catechism, maybe he's speaking more to the quote-unquote average Christian in the pew, and the average Christian in the pew might be more aware of his own despairs, his own doubts about being saved. Uh, but it's an interesting, you know, it'd be an interesting discussion for another time because I just don't know you know, the historical reality as to why Luther chose one in the small catechism and one in the large catechism. But an example of what we have in the small catechism, false belief, despair, other great shame and vice. Well, let's think about that. What would be the false belief? Here's an example. The world deceives us by its critical race theory in the false belief that every white person is inherently racist. That's false belief. And guess what that's going to lead to? It leads to a person despairing about his created self, right? He all of a sudden now sees what God created as being part of the fall and part of original sin. And now 
despairing of his created self and his image before God supposedly being a skin-deep image rather than baptism-deep image, that despair now leads to personal shame, something like white guilt, even suicide, because he doesn't believe now, he despairs now whether or not God loves him and whether or not God will care for this issue too, all because of false belief. Another example, the world deceives us by transgenderism, and the devil convinces us that what we see in the mirror is a horrible creation of God's. And that false belief then leads us to despair of my created body and given gender, and to believe that my body is broken and not the possibility that, according to the fall, maybe my mind is broken. And that despair then that my body is broken when it's really not, but the false belief has taught me that, that despair then leads to self-mutilation and self-mutilating surgeries and high rates of suicide. Another example, bad teaching deceives us to believe that the sacraments are not God's gifts, but man's good works and memorials of faith. And that false belief teaches us to despair of Christ's promises regarding word and sacrament, and therefore teaches, for example, a father of a newborn to say, well, I won't have the newborn baptized. I'll wait until the newborn is 12 years old, and then he can make his own decision as to whether or not he wants to be baptized. That's a despairing of Christ's promises based on false belief. And that despair and that rejection of the promises leads to great shame and vice of not bringing his infant to be baptized and not himself as a father and as a fellow sinner with that infant benefiting from the Holy Supper. And faith then dwindles and starves by such self-removal from God's gifts and such reliance upon one's own decision for Jesus or whatever the false belief has taught one to hope in. So in all of these, the pattern is the same, and we must be on guard with our doctrine. Notice that it starts with false belief, right? So whether you have the small catechism trio, false belief, despair, other great shame and vice, or the large catechism trio, misbelief, false security, stubbornness. Whichever trio you're working with, whether it's one of stubbornness and self-righteousness or whether it's one of despair, they both start with false belief. They both start with bad doctrine. And where you have bad doctrine, you are going to have bad results in daily life. And so we have to be on guard with our doctrine, lest bad doctrine lead to bad practice. This is exactly why it makes perfect sense that the epistles are always admonishing us to be careful with false teaching, with false prophets, anything that would cause us in doctrine to drift away from our anchor who is Christ and his pure doctrine. Because where we drift away from the doctrine, then in practice we will take matters into our own hands, and that will lead to nothing good. Last thing I might say on this particular petition, notice the admission of Christian wrestling in this petition, that when Luther talks about this, he says, although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. Notice that he admits that Christians wrestle. Every Christian knows that by experience, and yet sometimes we're ashamed to admit that this is part of the Christian life. Sometimes we like to think that it's those who are outside of Christianity who wrestle as sinners. And once you're in Christianity, everybody assumes that you're this good, holy, pious, devout person all the time. But Luther's explanation reminds us, no, we Christians wrestle 
with temptation and we really struggle with it. And our entire life is one of wrestling, repentance, forgiveness, and start the cycle all over again. And we'll get into that when we get into the baptismal life in the fourth question in the section on baptism. And so we should have a clear conscience, going back to that petition, forgive us our trespasses. We should have a clear conscience as we wrestle against these things. Luther says in the large catechism, he says, such feeling of temptation, as long as it is against our will, in other words, as long as our will is one with Christ's will, such feeling of temptation, as long as it is against our will and we would rather be rid of it, can harm no one. For if we did not feel it, it could not be called a temptation. Now, that's a great reminder, right? Everyone is so ashamed that they feel these temptations. And yet, why would Christ bother to warn us about this if we should expect that we never feel them? You know, if that's your litmus test as to whether you're a devout and pious Christian, that you never undergo temptation, my word, you've made yourself out not to be a Christian, but even greater than Christ, who himself knew temptation. It's not a question of whether or not we're going to feel temptation. As Jesus says, temptations are sure to come. When they come, it's how we handle these things that cause us the need to repent, whether we've trusted God's holy will to see us through temptation or whether we've taken matters into our hands. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had in the three-year series of readings, we had the reading on Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then the next week was the reading on Jesus calming the storm and getting into the boat with the disciples saying, take heart, I am, fear not. And I pointed out to my congregation in teaching on those that there's one thing that paralyzes us more than bodily need. So if the first reading was, was showing Christ's faithfulness to our bodily need, and if someone wanted to teach it that way, then that second reading about Christ calming the storm and saying, take heart, I am, fear not, that points out that the one thing that paralyzes us more than anything is fear. And when we fear, we tend to panic and forget the doctrine. And if we would just keep a level head, stay calm, and remember Christ's teaching, remember his promises, remember all the doctrine we've been taught in confirmation, and that we continue to be taught, because even after confirmation, you should still be in Bible study with your congregation, right? Every year here should say, yep, I'm still in Bible study with my congregation. And pastors should rejoice in teaching not just confirmation, but Sunday morning study and extra studies, maybe a study on the Book of Concord. But in that study together, in hearing those sermons divide law and gospel, in all of that, we are being kept in the pure doctrine so that by practice and by God's grace, when temptation comes, we may keep a level head and we may remember our doctrine and therefore we may hang on God's promises and his holy will and not feel that it would be a better way forward to just depend upon my own will and let capital M me now lead me right into temptation. So this is a, a wonderful petition for every Christian to learn as part of the sanctified life of saying, I can trust God's will always. I can trust my will very little because many times my will is not in keeping with God's will. But I can trust God's will always. He will not lead me into temptation, but rather he will defend me. He will guard and keep me as I go through these temptations that, because we live in a fallen world, those temptations, sadly, 
are bound to come. One of the quotes that I love from Martin Luther that relates to this, what we're talking about here is, is a well-known one. It goes like this. You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair, right? And I think that that's, uh, if anyone's listened to this show for very long, you know that I have this deep fear of birds. And so maybe I like that quote for that particular reason, but I think it relates exactly to this point here, right? That the temptations are going to come, but our prayer is that we would be defended from them and that part of our sanctified life is keeping them from building a nest in our, our hair which will tie in nicely then to the seventh petition where we're going to go next. We're going to go ahead and take our break here a little early, but when we come back then, we will talk about how we are delivered from evil, whether that be of the birds flying over your head or all kinds of much worse evil. Although uh, personally, I don't know that there is much worse than birds, but uh, we'll talk about all of that as we pick up the seventh petition on the other side of the break with our catechist for this series, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. When I look at the x-ray of your funny bone, it seems that everything is a-okay. Medical research has proven laughter helps you both emotionally and physically. Wrestling with the basics on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. are on demand. We've been putting the fun in the fundamentals for over 30 years. Over 30 years? Oh, don't put too much strain on your funny bone. Nine out of 10 doctors agree. It's less painful than getting a flu shot. I don't like it. Oh, yuck. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our Catechized Life series. And we just covered the sixth petition and lead us not into temptation. And as I said, just before break there, this really flows nicely then, especially using that Luther quote that I love so much about keeping the birds from making a nest in your hair. You can't stop them from flying overhead. A temptation is going to fly all around us. But we do also then pray here in the Lord's Prayer deliver us from evil, which flows nicely then into this seventh petition. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. This is the seventh petition from Luther's small catechism, but deliver us from evil. What does this mean? We pray in this petition in summary that our father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul possessions and reputation. And finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and draw this connection for us between these petitions as we talked about at the very beginning and give us our catechesis then on the seventh petition. When we ended the sixth petition, I intentionally sort of left off this last phrase in the sixth petition's meaning when Luther says, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. On the one hand, that finally means, you know, in daily life, you want to wrestle, 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 and eventually get past that particular temptation because, you know, we, we know we're going to have to move on to other temptations in daily life. But I left it off in, in, uh, before the break because it ties in so well to this transition into the seventh petition that a Christian always sort of has, if you will, one eye on the future. You know, St. Paul talks out this often about pressing on toward the prize that is ours in Christ Jesus, uh, that we push on toward the goal, we run the race. And so as we struggle with these temptations in daily life, 
as we live a life that is totally dependent upon Christ's forgiveness, God's forgiveness to us in Christ Jesus, we look forward to that ultimate end that he has promised us. And so this transition out of the sixth into the seventh is very natural as Luther's explanation refers to it, this finally we may overcome them and win the victory. But it's also very natural even as Jesus teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, because really this last petition is not even its own individual independent clause grammatically, but deliver us from evil grammatically is sort of a secondary conditional clause. And so even though we teach it and study it as its own petition, the grammar of it certainly ties it to the petition that comes before, and the petition that comes before certainly flows into this petition now that we're studying so that we can see that that Christian life always has in mind the idea that we are going to be vindicated. Our hope is not in vain. And so we can keep plugging away. We can keep moving forward and looking forward to that ultimate goal. We can uh, you know, think of how joyous, for example, it is to celebrate All Saints, the Festival of All Saints, and to sing those beautiful hymns. My favorite from All Saints is uh, Behold a Host Arrayed in White. And those remind us that there are saints that have gone on before us. There are Christians that have gone on before us and are now resting from, as the hymn says it, resting from their labors, but they are resting in that peaceful bliss that doesn't know temptation anymore. It doesn't know the suffering and struggles of life in this world anymore. It doesn't know the sorrows and headache of this world anymore. It just knows eternal life with Christ Jesus, as has been promised, the baptized of the Father. And so when we look at this, we can say, okay, well, if this is the joy, then we also have to take some instruction from this, deliver us from evil. Well, who or what is the evil? In fact, I specifically asked that question to hint at the fact that in the original languages, there's actually some discrepancy in how this should be translated into the English. Uh, should it be translated, deliver us from all generic evil, just the evil things, all the evil things out there, or should it be translated as the evil one? And the word in the Greek there allows for either option. And if I'm not mistaken, I've read in many and various places that some of the earliest versions of the Lord's Prayer handed down through the church actually refer to specifically the evil one. In uh, our version of it today, in our English, we speak to evil, and uh, either is perfectly fine. But to be reminded that this might refer specifically to the evil one helps us understand that we do need to acknowledge the reality of the evil one. The opposite of life with Christ is not just a do-gooder moralism and that the whole Christian life is one that says, oh, I'm either with Christ or I haven't quite done the moral things I need to do to be with Christ. No, the opposite of being with Christ is being with the devil, right? We were born as children of darkness we are now children of God's light. And that darkness, again, is not just bad morality, but rather it's being children of the prince of this world, and it's being captive to the prince of this world. And so to be a child of darkness is no mere headache of having bad morals, but rather it's a death sentence of being held captive by the old evil foe. So we do need to think about and meditate sometimes upon the fact that we should take the devil a little bit more seriously sometimes than we do. 
uh, sometimes if we take, you know, if someone gets into the rut of taking the devil too seriously and is too afraid of him, Luther actually will teach us that sometimes the best way to defend against the devil is to mock him. Uh, and yet I think for many Christians in today's day and age, especially in materialistic America, the idea of the supernatural evil out there is often seen as being superstition when it's not at all. If the supernatural good is true, as we know it is true in God and in the Messiah that he has sent, then certainly also is true the reality that Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil and that God in the garden cursed the devil and implied that, you know, because you have done this, he said, and, and thereby implied that what has happened in the fall is partially because of the work of the devil and not just because of Adam. But if all of that is true, then we should take the devil very seriously. We shouldn't be doing things. And I think we talked about this perhaps uh, weeks ago with the second commandment. You know, we shouldn't be playing around with things like the Ouija board uh, and witchcraft and things of that nature and thinking that it's just man making his own supernatural evil. But rather, the devil is very real. And Jesus teaches us in this petition to understand that evil versus good is not just as some, you know, Eastern mysticism thinks of its things like yin and yang, but rather it, it is God versus the devil. As Peter, I believe it, uh, it's Peter in his epistle says, we, we wrestle not with enemies of flesh and blood, but with the powers and principalities of darkness. Uh, and that is part of our daily life reality, even if we can't see it in front of us, because, you know, the devil's a smart guy. He's not going to show up with a pitchfork and red horns and a red tail. He knows that we're all going to say, oh, gee, there's the devil. I'm not going to follow him. But rather, the scripture says that he presents himself as an angel of light. And so even though that which we look at looks very normal to us, that doesn't mean it's not dangerous or of the devil. Just because we look at it and say, well, these are just people misbehaving in society or their views are just screwed up or whatever, that doesn't mean that their bad doctrine is somehow still sort of in this neutral position of man just being mistaken but not being evil, but rather the evil doctrine is fed to our society by the old evil foe. Uh, Luther one time famously talked about the idea that every time or uh, wherever the Lord sets up his church, the devil sets up his chapel. And he also said in another quote that the devil doesn't have to convince us of a different understanding. For example, I believe in this quote, he was talking about the Lord's Supper and the words of institution. He says, the devil doesn't have to convince us of a different interpretation. He just has to convince us there is no one knowable truth and interpretation. And if he convinces us that nobody knows what's going on, then he's one. And in a sense, when we belittle the existence of the devil, then we sort of shrug a little bit when we say, well, that person's off, but they're still well-intended. Well, that might be true of the individual, but the individual is espousing something that is evil. If it's not of Christ, then by definition, it's evil. There is no neutral ground in that reality. So we do have to acknowledge, deliver us from evil, that evil is not just this generic lack of good out there, but that we do have a very specific enemy. Uh, Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, speaks very specifically about the old evil foe, now meaning deadly woe. Deep guile and great might are his dread arms and fight on earth is not his equal. Uh, that's not a good place to stop that hymn, by the way. Don't ever stop A Mighty Fortress by just singing the first verse. As I remember uh, when I went to a 
when I was in high school, I went to a public high school in California, and for some reason, they decided to sing A Mighty Fortress, but they only sang the first verse. And then it stops with, on earth is not the devil's equal, not on earth is not God's equal, but is the devil's equal. And that, again, by that, Luther is showing us, uh, as Jesus teaches us here in the Lord's Prayer, just how much we ought, at least to use the term loosely, respect the reality of the devil and how dangerous he is. At the same time, as Luther said in the sixth petition, temptation comes not just from the devil, but also from the world and from our own sinful nature. So it's understandable that we would speak more broadly of all evil because the devil isn't the only source of evil. So is the world and so is our own sinful old Adam. And therefore, we do have to be careful about being delivered from evil and that evil being broader and bigger than the prince of this world. And so in the large catechism, Luther puts the onus on the chief enemy being the devil. But he does go on to include in his large catechism commentary, quote, whatever evil may happen to us under the devil's kingdom, again, namely in this broken world. So we don't often think of the world this way, but all our worldly ills, whether it be poverty, illness, shame, it only exists because of the fall for which the prince of this world is certainly chief tempter and accuser, and certainly uh, sort of the one who led Eve into it, even if Adam and our own sinful nature has the blame to bear from the scriptural record in the book of Romans, for example. But Luther goes on here and he says, rescue us from every evil of body and soul possessions and reputation. Now think about that lay out there for a minute, that we pray that our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions and reputation. Now, I think that that second half, possessions and reputation, hints at the fact that Luther meant something specific by including these four, and it wasn't just him whimsically deciding what, you know, some four things to randomly choose as to what the Lord would deliver us from. He could have just said all things body and soul, because that includes all of our life. But no, he actually also includes possessions and reputation, which sort of remind us of the Ten Commandments, right? So that when you look at this, you can say, you know, really the body in many ways refers to commandments five and six, uh, you shall not murder, certainly that refers to the body, but the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, also refers to the body because our body is not our own. It belongs to my spouse. My spouse's body belongs to me. We are made one flesh. And so really the fifth and sixth commandments both fall under that category of every evil of body. And then every evil of soul reminds us of commandments one, two, and three, certainly in our vertical relationship with God. And then possessions and reputation. Well, possessions is certainly seventh commandment, and you could include ninth and 10th commandment in there and just the idea of coveting all of these things. But then reputation is included both in the eighth commandment, very forthrightly, very specifically, but implicitly also in the fourth commandment. The idea of honoring your father and mother is the idea of protecting their reputation as the ones who have been called into this vocation and honoring and respecting that. And so you really have all of the 10 commandments implied here in this description that we pray that God would rescue us from every evil that, in a sense, draws us away from his good and holy will as we find it in the Ten Commandments. And so here again, even at the very end of the prayer, we are being taught by Christ 
to view how precious and good and holy is God's divine will, and that all of our days can be numbered by those holy Ten Commandments because God's will is for our good, it's for our benefit, it comes with great promise and inheritance for all of those who are safe in Christ Jesus, who, though they couldn't keep the Ten of their own accord and though they couldn't earn the promised inheritance, yet in Christ Jesus it is freely theirs. All of that is even here found and implied in this idea that he's delivering us from all evil that seeks to separate us from God. Separation syndrome again. And therefore, if nothing can separate us from God, as St. Paul says, right, in that very well-loved passage in Romans chapter 8, that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. If that separation syndrome has been overcome, and Christ has brought everything back together, as he declared on the cross, it is finished, it is all accomplished. If all of that is true, and the separation syndrome domino effect is now being, in a sense, reversed, and all things in their time and according to their order, then we can pray, give us a blessed end. Christians do not need to fear our earthly end, because God's promise is that he would take us out of this broken world and put us in the new creation. That's part of the renewal of the separation syndrome. Remember, the very last enemy to be destroyed is death, the physiological separation, and in a sense, right with it comes not just the ecological separation in the fall, but remember, in the same time frame then, is also at the end of days that ecological separation will be repaired in the new creation. And so he promises us that he's going to take us out of this brokenness and put us into the new creation. And so we can pray for this blessed end, for deliverance out of this world, not as if death is our friend. And that's a really important one nowadays for the Christian to be very careful about. Death is not our friend. As Paul says, and I just cited, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Sadly, in our wayward society, we have many people thinking that euthanasia, uh, assisted suicide, any way of getting to death and helping people escape pain and suffering is supposedly a good and noble thing. Uh, that's not true. God knows our days, and he has them numbered, and it is not ours to take our days into our own hands and try to hasten our blessed end. God will bring the blessed end when he's good and ready to bring the blessed end. And before that, it is not ours to try and hasten it. But rather, we simply call out to him as we do at the very end of the scripture, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. We pray for him to hasten it, but we don't take matters into our own hands. So death is not our friend. We don't pray for this blessed end in that regard, but we pray for it as if the Lord has turned the evil of death into a toothless dog all bark and no bite, and that toothless dog now serves only to bring us out of death and into life. And that's exactly what the Christian can know in his time of dying, is that I don't need to think about death right now. I can think about life because life is coming. And this is the joy in learning this petition. He goes on and he says, graciously take us from this valley of sorrow. Does the maturity of the Christian life not teach us to grow out of love with this temporal world and life. That doesn't mean, again, that we should somehow disdain and, and not appreciate all the temporal good 
that God gives us in this world. He has been so gracious to all of us in ways that we can never enumerate. Uh, we can think of our spouses, our children. We can think of our temporal possessions and our reputation, all good things that he has given us. And yet he also sometimes teaches us that we ought not love them more than Christ, and we ought not love them more than the eternal inheritance he has in store for us, uh, which is why I said weeks ago when we were talking a little bit about the sixth commandment, and I said, husbands, the best you can love your wife is to love Christ more than them, and wives, the best you can love your husband is to love Christ more than him, because then husband and wife will point each other to that great eternal marriage that never ends, because Christ is gently, and the Father in heaven is gently teaching us at times, sometimes by even allowing us to suffer in this world, he's teaching us to let go of the temporal good and know that there's an eternal good that awaits us. Sometimes when people are struggling with death, I point out to them that often people die in one of two ways. Either God allows us to enjoy every last day of life together, and then we're suddenly gone, and the person has to grieve their loved one's death afterward. Or sometimes God allows us to really suffer and struggle for days, weeks, months, so that the person who is going to suffer the loss, that's not the person who's dying. The Christian who's dying is going to be with Christ and knows no more tears. But the person who suffers the loss, who is in a sense left behind, Sometimes the Lord allows them to suffer ahead of time so that they can be ready when that death comes, when their loved one's death, and then they don't have to grieve as much afterward. And so this petition in, you know, sort of incorporates all of that in this meaning here, that God is going to, out of his great love for us, he's going to carry us unto himself in heaven. There's the Christian's eternal joy to be wherever Christ is, with his Christ, with his church forever. And all of this depends upon God, his strength, his holiness, his mercy. Uh, Luther says, if we are to be preserved and delivered from all evil, God's name must first be hallowed in us, his kingdom must be with us, and his will must be done. Notice how Luther harkens back to the beginning of the prayer. Again, not coincidentally, the first table of the law, man's right relationship with God, that's what he harkens back to. And he says, everything depends upon that. Everything depends upon a right relationship with God. And that right relationship with God depends upon the forgiveness of sins, that we might have that free and clear conscience, that we do have that right relationship with God, and therefore can be not only confident, but certain that everything flows from that right relationship with God. Everything rests with him. Our help is in the name of the Lord. We pray that every Sunday we declare that, we confess that. That's the first part of that divine service setting three, which is the service setting that my congregation uses every Sunday. Our help is in the name of the Lord. That says it all. When we were going through COVID and the early weeks of COVID, I pointed this out to the congregation. I said, look, you know, yes, we've got doctors, we've got Fauci, we've got vaccines coming, we've got all of these different things that people can be thankful for, but we ought not put our hope in all of them, but rather hope knows where its help is. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And therefore it's fitting that whether original or not, as we conclude with this beautiful reminder that God is going to deliver us from all of this evil, then whether original or not, this doxology that follows on the end is definitely worthy, if you will, of being declared and being confessed that indeed this is the God we have. 
to whom belongs all adoration. Yeah, when you started your teaching there on the seventh petition, you talked about how you didn't cover that last line in the sixth petition. And there is this line here in the seventh petition that you didn't cover. And it says, in summary, it comes right at the beginning of the explanation that Luther gives there. And so this is then our transition, as you were just talking about there, to the doxology or what we call the conclusion. And we're going to have to talk about whether it's original or not and how it relates there. But let me go ahead and read this here for us. So this is the conclusion, which I can't say comes from Luther's small catechism because this wasn't included originally, but is included in the small catechisms that we have and use. And so this is the conclusion. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What does this mean? This means that I should be certain that these petitions are pleasing to our Father in heaven and are heard by him. For he himself has commanded us to pray in this way and has promised to hear us. Amen, amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and give us that connection then of why this doxology is included when previously Luther has said in summary in the seventh petition. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And there's been a lot of debate over the centuries even about whether or not this is original and authentic. Luther, as you mentioned, does not necessarily include it in the uh, small catechism and therefore says, all right, the end of it is our discussion on deliver us from evil. And that is his summary statement. And so then the Lutheran might say, well, wait a second, are we doing something wrong by including this? Because Rome doesn't include it, right? If you ever have those, you know, get togethers with Roman Catholic family or friends, and if you somehow, you know, if you decide to pray the Lord's Prayer together as a prayer that we can all pray together, then, you know, they cut off and we keep going and you go, okay, well, now what? You know, and, and it's sort of an awkward thing. So it can be sort of awkward for Lutherans to say, well, does that mean that we've been saying it incorrectly all these years? So a couple of things to think about. First of all, whether or not it's original, the end of a prayer, you know, in good Jewish custom, uh, always included a doxology of sorts. For this reason, I personally, and I'm not the scholar here, but I personally tend to think that there's a decent chance this was original because Jesus was a good, pious Jew. And when Jews prayed, they ended with doxologies. And so it would have been sort of weird if Jesus just ended by saying amen without the doxology. The reason that it is called into question is because Luke's version definitely does not include it. And there's discrepancy in the different manuscripts that we have of Matthew's version. Of course, Matthew's version is that version of a Jew writing about a Jew to the Jews. And even in that version, there are discrepancies in the manuscripts that we have as to whether or not it should be included. Some manuscripts include them, others don't. Again, I think just because Jesus was a good, pious Jew, I think that lends itself to the possibility that this was authentic, plus the fact that we have two interesting passages in Scripture that talk about this and that sort of hint at these words. For example, in First Chronicles, the words in First Chronicles are very synonymous to what we have when David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And he says there in verse 11 of chapter 29 in First Chronicles, he said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Well, there's certainly 
words in there and phrases in there that sound very similar. And now from 2 Timothy, Paul says something somewhat similar when he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. I find that one interesting because it even sort of appeals to what we call the seventh petition, deliver us from evil. And Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So there are a couple passages in here which sort of hint at it. And that, again, is why we shouldn't take any concern in this and saying, look, if even if it's not original to the Lord's Prayer, if Paul can sort of end a prayer that way, if David can end a prayer that way, then certainly the Christian can end the Lord's Prayer with a doxological statement and say, you know, we're not trying to add theology to the Lord's Prayer. We are simply confessing our God is great. And our God is the one God above all creation and over all creation, and therefore we're going to praise his holy name. So, you know, I'm not worried about, if you will, the authenticity of it. I think every Lutheran can, and with a very clear conscience, can and should go forward and say, yes, let's praise God's name at the end of this prayer. In the large catechism, Luther attaches commentary on the word amen to the final petition just as you said in the small catechism in summary. And so he doesn't even include a final part in the large catechism for the Amen. He just attaches it in the description of the seventh petition. So that sort of shows that he sort of just looks right past the doxological statement. And he simply uh, says in that final petition, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And so, you know, by so doing, we do see the certainty of our final deliverance and our inheritance, right? That he says, yes, this is true. God is going to deliver us from evil. And therefore, you know, we're not just saying amen to the doxological statement. We're not just saying to God be the glory, amen, but to everything we have prayed. All of that is summarized by that final statement. And now the amen says, yes, yes, this shall be so. We can also be certain with that word amen, because as Luther reminds us about prayer, He says, God himself has commanded us to pray in this way and has promised to hear us. So think about that. Why would we now doubt that he who has given us the very words to say would somehow ignore them? He's not going to ignore the prayer he has given you. And so you can pray it with absolute confidence, almost as if you are gripping his ears and saying, here, you must hear this because you have promised to hear it. And I am now coming to you not based on the strength of my faith, not based on my merit, but based on your own promise and your own command. And so based on your command, and because you have promised to hear me, now I come to you with prayer. And therefore, every Lutheran can learn very confidently and boldly to actually say, Amen. That's something that, I, that as we sing it in the liturgy or as we speak it you know, at the end of prayer, even with the sermon, right, with the greeting and the, the salutation of the sermon, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This is true. This is coming from God himself for us Christians. Or in the name of Jesus, amen. Or, you know, the Trinitarian reference that is often heard at the end of the sermon. Amen. This is God's word. This is God's holy will. He is going to see us through in all of these things. And therefore, every Lutheran can learn to love that word. Amen. Yes, yes, it shall be so. 
Well, what more is there to say to that then? Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Bestel, for your catechesis here today. That, as we have included there, the sixth and seventh petitions and conclusion here today, that wraps up our study of the Lord's Prayer as we go through this series, The Catechized Life. But we will continue to push forward in the small catechism and large catechism as we continue this series going into baptism next week. So please join us for that. Thank you for stopping by today, dear listener. Until next time, keep confessing, church.